Have you guys ever been to a, uh, like a kid's orchestra or music recital? <laughs> Have you guys ever been? Yeah. Um, here's a quick little picture, uh, should come up here, of my kids. A little bit younger than now. Uh, so much cuteness. This was back in Arizona. So this was their first, like, instrument, right? My daughter, which this is so on brand, the violin. She's just first born, you know, OCD, you know, she loves it. And then my son, the second born, he's a little crazy, the trumpet. Of course he picks the trumpet. And for the first, like, few weeks in our household, it was scratching sounds, and it literally sounded like at times a cat was dying somewhere in our house, <laughs> even though we do not have a cat. But I remember thinking, like, you know, especially when we would take them to their solo uh, practices, right, um, and seeing my daughter or my son play their, their instrument, and I'm just like, they're supposed to play with other people one day. How in the world is this going to mesh up? Have you guys ever been there before? Um, how in the world is this going to happen? And, you know, so you get to the recital, you get to the recital, and you sit down in the audience, and you're like, oh, let's just, you know, get through this. Let's see how this goes. Hopefully the dying cats don't come out, and let's, let's keep moving. And you're sitting there, and you're waiting, and everyone has flowers, which I never understood flowers for a kid's recital. Like, honestly, don't you think they want candy, you know, or, or, or some toy or something? Like, why flowers? But anyway, so you, they, all the flowers are there, and you're sitting there, and you're waiting for them to play. And you're sitting there, and you're finally, and they begin. And it's for sure not Beethoven or anything close to that, but they're actually making music together. And you go from seeing your child and the scratching sounds and the wondering could they ever make music with other human beings ever in their life to now seeing them play music with other kids. And that is the picture, that is the picture of what our text is bringing out for us today. That God is taking people, strangers from different backgrounds, different worldviews, different ethnicities, and he's taking strangers and he's making them family. He's making them family. God's greatest desire for the household of God is in our diversity that we would make one sound, sing one song, and have one mind. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. It feels at times like a pipe dream. All week long, we are catechized by things that divide us. And it's hard to come into this place, and you guys are looking good, and it's hard to come into this place, and everything feels great when we are so catechized by everything that is meant and designed to divide us, and it's hard to come into this place feeling like we are of one mind and then go back into the culture or into society that opposes all of that and into environments that divide us. And not to mention now, this is now creeping into the church. And so in a divided world, it's so easy to drift into silo thinking and build churches that become characterized by fragmented theological ideas and random programs. 
It's going to have to be deeper than our failed attempts at unity in our culture. And it feels like in our culture, the more we attempt to create oneness, have you guys noted this, noticed this? The more that, you know, things are out there and the more ideologies that, uh, for unity and for becoming one, the, the further and further away from each other that we feel. Do you guys feel that? And we create slogans and create massive nonprofits in America, and, and yet we're more divided than ever. Unity for the modern person is acceptance within a political or ideology, ideological framework. But see, what the scripture is saying is, and what we're going to see today, is that unity isn't uniformity. It's something better than that. It's something bigger than that. But before we can begin casting the stone at culture, we have to realize that Jesus' hardest words was not for the people that we disagree with on Twitter. They were for the household of God, the people that claim the name of Jesus for you and for me. And, and I was thinking as I was writing this, uh, this this past week how quickly I am or have been to label people false teachers or warning other believers to keep their distance from them without doing my homework. And of course, there is a time for us to warn against false teaching, and that is so important, and that's something the church needs to do and continue doing. But there's also a time to do your homework and not be so quick to, to judge because of the costly mistakes that I have made, and I'm sure... Maybe you have made as well. So quick to jump on the bandwagon of our popular theological tribe and attacking men and women now whom I know are God's beloved children. How many of us break fellowship with other believers because of the disagreements that we have, because of preferences that were not seen or not made into a reality? Unity feels like a pipe dream. And then Proverbs 6 says this. The six things the Lord hates. Okay, now we're, we're all ears, right? Seven that are an abomination to him. He says, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and lastly, the one who sows discord among Brothers, God hates the things that wedge division in the household of God. And so think about it. How much time do you take during the week for learning versus loving? Here's what I mean. Learning about, about another person and what they're saying on Twitter and attempting to defend, you know, whatever it is, your tribe or whatever it might be or what are they doing in the church versus loving them and getting on their knees? And maybe they did say something in error, but first getting on your knees and begging God to correct the error for the sake of the gospel and the good of the church. Our passage today is an invitation to you and to me, an invitation into an alternate reality, a reweaving the strands of a story of a new community together into, a, into unity in diversity. It's an invitation. And it's an invitation into God's heart because unity is a picture of the heart of God 
who before creation, before, the scripture says, before the foundations of the world, set it on his heart and on his mind to create an alternative way to belong in the fallen world. So you think in Genesis, right? In the very beginning of scripture, in Genesis, when God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, he commissioned them to be apprentice musicians, to be co-conductors in the symphony of praise that God has placed uh, us in creation. Genesis says that God created us in his likeness, in his image, to image him in the world, co-conductors in the symphony of praise. And we have a God who exists eternally in loving, unified, perfect relationships. So what does it mean for us as people made in his image? It seems, it seems that we were created in such a way that we are capable of obtaining oneness with God and each other. Have you guys ever, you know, been in a moment where you are a part of someone's last words on their dying bed? Not to get morbid here, but... I remember 12 years ago, uh, my grandmother died, and I remember her last words till this very day. It was something she wanted to see happen in our family that just did not exist. And in John 17, verses 20 through 26, Jesus' last words for his followers, for his apprentices, right before he goes to the cross and die, you could say these are his dying words. And so you can imagine that his disciples are all ears and they're all eyes and they're listening to his prayer. And his prayer for his disciples before he goes to the cross is this. It's, it's, it's not power to proclaim the name or, you know, more churches planted. He says this, I do not ask, John 17, verses 20 through, 20 through 26, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that I have been given, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. It's a very Trinitarian statement. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as I, as you loved me. His last words are for us to be one with God and with each other. This is why Paul in his epistles describes the unity of the church like this. In Ephesians 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul, Apostle Paul, again says, now there are a variety of gifts, right? But the same spirit, and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities and opportunities, but it is the same God who empowers them all. The reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is what we need to understand the very social fabric of the church. 
Notice in 1 Corinthians, there's diversity in gifts and activities, but the same God who empowers them all. When we talk about God, we are talking about a, a triune God who exists three in one, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One are not the same, but they are the same God, and it is three in one. And in Deuteronomy 6 is a perfect illustration of what this looks like. Uh, the, the author says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Trinity means that God is three in one, unity and diversity. Now in our text today, the psalmist opens up right away with this very promise, with this declaration. And he goes in verse 1, and if you have your scriptures, you can open again to Psalm 133, verse 1, and he says this, Behold, now not every psalm is opened up with behold, so we need to, this is something to lean into, right? To, to open our eyes and to open our ears to. So behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now this psalm is a part of the psalm, uh, the, the album formerly known as the Psalms called the Songs of Ascent, okay? And so these are like road trip psalms, you could, you could say, that the Israelites would sing on their way toward upward, toward Jerusalem. And so when you travel to Jerusalem, you are going upward because Jerusalem is more on a mountain. But the psalm is always, is also, so they're not only physically and literally going upward, but the psalm is saying, and what the songs of ascent mean, is this, these songs are meant to take us spiritually upwards to take us into the throne room of grace. The worship takes them closer to God. And then when they would finally come together, they would share in unity over the festivals with each one other around the, these three annual festivals that it, the Israelites would have. And during these feasts, they would share in their common heritage the redemption from Egypt, the Exodus story. They would remember, they would reflect, they would reset on, what, on, on all that God has done and remember and tell the story in their encampment uh, around the tabernacle, around God's presence. And the first thing this tells us about unity is that unity is sharing of our common inheritance. There's a reason that Psalm 133 falls into the songs of ascent because they, not only is it lifting us up to God, but during the time that these psalms would be sung is an important thing for us to see. So first of all, unity is created by truth, not by organization. Unity is created by truth, not by organization. Again, unity isn't uniformity. Unity isn't denominations, it's not your theological tribe or your preferred ideology. The problem we face is not a lack of truth or even the ability to go and to learn truth, but as Richard Lent says in his book, Uncommon Unity, he says this, churches over-adapt to their cultural context when they lose their distinctiveness from the cultural setting. And their words and practices are indistinguishable from the ordinary habits of the world around it. 
Churches underadapt when their rhetoric and practices become so isolating from the world around them, they lose all ability to communicate a compelling gospel vision to their cultural neighbors. The problem is that the church today is accommodating. We want to take the offense of the cross, the offense of the gospel, out while our culture is more divided than ever. What unity and what gospel unity, what biblical unity is, is saying and what it's meant for is it's meant to link arms, not around accommodations, but around our common inheritance. One story around the truth of the gospel, what unites the church, it is what is meant to consecrate us from the rest of the world is that we stand on the authority of God's word. Amen? Amen. That's what separates us. What separates us is the truth that you and I stand on. It's not a church. It's not a denomination. It's not an organization. It's not a network. It's not even our theological tribe. What unites us is the very truth of God. And this is found in the ancient creed, the ancient Nicene Creed. It should come up here in a minute. That we believe in one God. This is what unites us, guys. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, of all things visible and invisible, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, in light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made for us and our salvation. He came down from heaven he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and has made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, amen? And he suffered and he was buried. And on the third day, this is the good news, folks, he rose again according to the scriptures and he ascended to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's still there, guys, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will never End. And you know what? We also believe in the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, right? And he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. And he spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, and that just means big universal church, apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. That's the truth that unites us, church. Amen? And the greatest threat to Christian unity today is not the lies of the culture. And I know there's a lot, and I know there's things that we need to call out. But our greatest threat to unity today is not the lies of the culture. It's Christians who don't know their Bibles and what is true about God. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now verse 1 says good and pleasant. Good and pleasant. That word good literally it's, it's what ought to be. It's what God requires, that it would be good, right? Pleasant is what we desire. It's what we rejoice in. It's what we want. We want Unity in the body to be pleasant, to be something that we're able to rejoice in. Uh, uh, dis discovering what you're rejoicing in, and you will find what you are prioritizing. 
And so the idea is that unity is not an ideal we chase, but it's a reality of being in Christ. We don't chase for unity. We are in Christ. And the result of that is unity. As you and I abide and obey in the word and who God is, and we chase after him in our pursuit, and as we talked about in week one, we bury our roots in the scriptures. As we are doing this, as we're apprenticing after Jesus, that's when naturally the spirit of God unifies his church, all one mind. Unity isn't something we pursue. Unity is the outcome of pursuing the truth in Christ. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Verse 1. So unity is not only something that we don't pursue, but we pursue Christ in truth. It's not the ideal we chase, but it's the reality of being in Christ. But unity is also prioritizing oneness over preference. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a fellow German, Dietrich's my man, all right? I love what he says in his book, uh, Life Together. He says this, he who loves his dream of a community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. And what he's saying is one of the greatest threats to Christian unity is when we choose to prioritize our preferences of our preferences of church, of the way things should be done, over what unites us. That word dwell in verse one is meant to, in other words, inhabit, to remain sitting together. The word unity is closer to the word union or community. And so it's, it's more like this, and I'm doing this for some of you lab rats out there. Um, it's more like the two becoming one of a chemical compound, okay? It's the two becoming one of a chem- chemical compound consisting of two separate elements that then, when conjured, have a single chemical makeup. That's what unity is. It's sharing one mind like the, like the triune God. Philippians 2, Paul says, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. But why does this feel so hard to experience and to know? Have you guys asked that question? I think one of the biggest reasons is, is because the We live in a consumer culture, and consumers have preferences, but the church has stories. Consumer has a preference, but the church has stories. You know, we're going to West Virginia next week, and what I love about this trip and something that happened last time we were there when we took 20 or so high schoolers down to West Virginia for the first time. You know, when we got there, the the pastor admitted, hey, I didn't know what to think of you guys. You know, they're West Virginia, we're California. You guys kind of get it, right? And so they're like, I I was a little nervous about having you guys come out, to be honest. Um, And so were we. We didn't know what to expect, right? Like, what are we going to run into? And by the end of it, he said, you guys are just, you're just more of us. We're family. 
And the beautiful thing is, uh, what happened on that trip was, we went into, uh, you know, life down there is really uh, uh, addiction and recovery. That's really what life is down there in many ways. And so we went to many different addiction and recovery homes. And one of the homes we went into was a men's home that was um, getting ready to be shut down. We had no idea this was going to happen. Uh, it was getting ready to shut down by the, by the county because the flooring there was so, um, so messed up. And they just they haven't had the, the money or the time or the people to fix the flooring. And so we, the pastor knew this, and so we went down there. He set it up for us and our students to go down there and to fix the floor. And the community director came up to me, he's a pastor as well, and he said, you guys have no idea what this means. I know you guys think this is just a community project, but you are literally saving this recovery house. Consumers have preferences, but the church has stories. Now, when we went there, we didn't know what to think. It was a different context. In fact, some of the students were like, why are we going all the way across the country to, to work? Right? And it's a, it's a great question, right? I even had that question at times myself in, in my own reflection. We were nervous. We didn't know what to expect. But one of the beautiful things was as we then begun to die to our preferences, die to ourselves, it opened up the opportunity for us to rise with Christ. It's what Paul Miller calls the J curve. As I'm dying to self, preferences, how the way things I w- want them to be, then it opens the door for us to then rise to what Christ has for you and for me. The consumer wants preference. They want to stay in what they know. They want, to, they want what's predictable. But the church dies to preferences, stepping into the unknown and serving one another. Listen, the enemy can't defeat the church, amen, right? And we know that, and he will not, and the gates of hell will not prevail, and God will. He has the final victory. He doesn't, we're not hoping he's going to get the final victory. He has the final victory, and we know that because of the resurrection and what the cross has done, and he's ascended at the right hand of the Father. He is victorious, and he will reign, and we know that. Um, But the enemy is going to work to divide us anyways, And as I was thinking about this, about our church, is we have a generation of young people, as we just heard, and we have uh, some young adults, and there's a flourishing young adults group here at at VCC, and we have a generation of young people with time, and an older generation with so much wisdom. But what I'm seeing is, not just at our church, but really all over, is I'm seeing is the older generation and the younger generations, because they don't understand each other, it divides them. But what happens when those generations divide? The younger generation repeats the same patterns. And now we have a generation of young people leaving the church. I've said it before. We live in the most de-churched area in the entire United States. Now, I'm hopeful for this generation, and I have one of my own of this generation, and her faith is inspiring. But unity means getting to know the stranger who God has placed you in family with for the sake of serving, loving, and investing in one another. Generations, we need to come together for the sake of truth, unifying on truth. Because the consumer has preferences. The church has stories. Imagine the stories that could be said 
could be told if you were to take a student, a young adult, older generation, and come together. Younger generation, imagine the stories that could be told if you were to apprentice with someone and just sit with them at Inklings, getting to know them, hearing their stories about faith and how they handled certain things. Imagine the power of that. Then in verse 2, it goes on to say, David says, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Now, oil is running down is a picture of not leaving one single hair untouched. It's meant to be a, 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 a fragrant aroma, right? Oil is referred to the oil of gladness in Psalm 45. Oil right here, and here's what I love, and here's where my nerd comes out, is oil connects with the broader story of Scripture. Anointing oil in the Old Testament refers to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The oil was meant to prepare the tabernacle where God's presence lived among his people. But it was also used for the consecration of the tent meeting. The only one able to go in was the high priest and the priest who could anoint with the oil. And so, of course, in this psalm, the writer is describing uh, Aaron, who's the high priest. But Aaron is a picture of what God is going to do through his son. He's going to pave the way for the spirit to be poured out and then to unify us all as one. So what this is saying is that unity is the visible expression of the invisible work of the spirit. Aaron, as the priest, would be consecrated, set apart, and anointed to fulfill the mission of God. And we don't seek unity. It's, it's the outcome of seeking God, and we've, we've said that. But the Holy Spirit is the one who does the heart work in us to set us apart, and he's doing that in all of us. The, the Reformers called this the invisible and the visible church. Has anyone heard that term before? The visible church, uh, it makes up of those who claim to be um, Jesus followers. We see you. You're here. You're present. You're doing the things. You're doing the activities. That's the visible church. The invisible church comprises of all those who are really, truly God's chosen people, his followers of Christ. So the invisible and the visible church, we see but God is the one working on what is invisible to us. But what unity is meant to do is to give us a foretaste of the new creation to the world around us. And so when we say doing life together, which is one of our apprenticeship practices, right? It isn't a cute saying on a poster. It is the desire of God for his people to have one mind, to be a megaphone to the world about the power of the gospel. That's why unity is so important. Unity is not an ideal we chase, but it's the reality of being in Christ. See, the church is meant to be a tangible encounter of what it feels like to be loved by Jesus in the world. The church is meant to be an intangible encounter of what it feels like to be loved by Jesus in the world. And then it goes on in verse 3. He says this. It's like the dew of Hermon. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forever. You guys remember what happened in Mount Sinai? 
Anyone familiar with that, that story? They came to Sinai to worship, but they were told, do not touch the mountain. And if a man or a beast touches the mountain, they're, they're going to die. And it's almost like, oh, my gosh. And, and when the engagement, or it, it's almost like the police tape um, was wrapped around Mount Sinai. And the message was, don't go any further, right? And when the engagement with God begins, they're all right up on the mountain crowding, uh, but not touching the police tape right around the, um, around the mountain. And then when you read Exodus 20, after God speaks, you remember the 10 words in Exodus 20. Are not, they're not spoken by Moses to the people. God himself speaks those words to the children of Israel. You guys remember that story? And when you find the next, uh, the next there are 100 yards away from the, mount, from the mountain of Sinai. Whereas they had been told initially, don't get too close. Moses and the elders have to call them back again. You guys remember? And what did Moses say? They said, Moses, just one request. Please, never let us speak directly again to him. Would you always be our spokesman, right? Would you always go in between us and God? Would you always be our mouthpiece? Because it, was, it terrified us to hear the voice of the living God, Yahweh, from Sinai with thunder and lightning and earthquake and darkness and fire speaking to us. And the whole world trembling thing just isn't for us, okay? So if you could get in between us, that's great. In fact, we know from the author of Hebrews that even Moses was terrified. But what Mount Zion is... It represents the church. The church is our high priest who anoints us with the spirit, or Christ is our high priest, sorry. The Christ is our high priest who anoints us with the spirit, not leaving one piece behind like the oil being poured on Aaron's beard, pouring out his spirit completely on us, making us priests to dwell together, to live together. God's end time people who are united in Christ, sharing in the love of love of each other that sets them apart from the rest of the world. But you have to come to Mount Zion. There's no police tape around this mountain. You have to come and into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to all the angels and the festival gatherings and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God and the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Of Abel. Hebrews, verses, uh, Hebrews says this. He says, seven things that God has brought to you, he brought, he brought you to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've been brought to the capital city of the new heavens and the new earth. And guess where it is? It's not a place. It's a people. It's a people. You are the God indwelt capital city of the new heavens and the new earth. Zion was the place on earth where God and his people lived together. And so the psalmist is saying, it's like the dew and Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. If you know anything about Mount Hermon, it's known for being this lush, 
and green during even the winter months. And so what it's saying is division causes suspicion. And what this is saying is that when we prioritize oneness in the house of God, it's like do even in the winter, even when things, when we want division, or even when our preferences aren't taken up, or even when things are difficult, it's like do even in those times when we're tempted to divide. So in other words, unity is like do, it keeps sustaining and it keeps the church flourishing. Unity keeps sustaining and it keeps the church flourishing, even in seasons when we want to divide or we want to go to another place. But look, there's a lot of pain behind these things I'm talking about. All of my biggest hurts were done by followers of Jesus. I don't want to pretend that that doesn't exist. I know it does. I feel it. I'm still dealing with some of the consequences of it. But yet here I am. I'm still here. Because the question is, what's the alternative? To become suspicious? To contribute to the dysfunction of society? No, what does Jesus say in Luke 6? Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and, you're, and, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Those are words the world doesn't understand. Pain, hurt, turmoil. I understand. Church, we need to be patient. What does Scripture say about love? It's patient. So when we're hurt, we can go to either the two extremes. We can shut off completely from community. We can be suspicious of everyone and everything. Or we have no boundaries at all, and we just tell everybody our, our stuff, right? Anyone know that person? Love is patient. For some of you, this is going to take some time. You're going to need to practice prioritizing life together. You're going to have to practice that J-curve of dying to your preferences, of dying to self, and seeing how God might work. We need to commit to understanding that biblical unity is God forming a community out of strangers. It's like a symphony. You see strangers walking up with their instruments, and you're sitting down, and you see everyone getting ready, right? And you're like, how is this, this going to work? And the beautiful thing is that some of you have different gifts. Bill, you have this amazing gift of HR and, and taking the minutes for elders. You're, you're, you're amazing at that, right? Tyler, amazing gift of bringing life together and, and what you're doing in your comm group is just so incredible. I could, I could tell story after story and what God is doing is he's bringing different backgrounds, different people, strangers and creating family to sing one song, one song of praise. And so what unity says to the world around us that's divided and constantly arguing with one another is that no, the church, what they stand on is truth and the song that is coming out of the church is a song of hope and the power 
of the gospel. And so for the church, our song is a song of what God is doing in us, and he's bringing us together different backgrounds, different preferences, different ideals, and he's bringing us together as we seek him. He's unifying our church, and it's singing a song, a symphony of praise. It's like that verse that says, when they see your good works, they'll glorify your, your, your Father in heaven. The world is longing for that, guys. The Bay Area is longing to see the church in our symphony of praise. The Tri-Valley is longing to see the church unified, singing the one song of truth. And we are unified only because of the cross. Amen? And we are unified because after the cross, on the third day, as the Nicene Creed said, he rose again defeating death, conquering sin. And the enemy's going to work hard to divide us. But the spirit has come. And the promise is that the gates of hell will not prevail. And so church, the invitation for you and to me is to unite around the truth of the gospel today. And as we seek Christ, he'll do the work. And our good works and our deeds will be a symphony of praise. And the world will see how we treat each other. And they'll be amazed. And the hope is that they will glorify our Father in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that unifies us as your apprentices. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that, Lord, your broken body and your blood spilled on our behalf sinful humanity has paved the way for us to know life and life to the fullest. God, help us to be men and women who repent. And maybe even today, we need to repent of relational strife. The scripture says, don't even come to the table if you have something against your brother. So maybe today, we need to go across the aisle and say, brother, sister, I love you. I'm sorry. My preference got in the way of our unity. And may we be a church that looks like that and does that so the world might see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.